1: welcome to new books in african-american studies a channel on the new books network i'm your host adam mcneil on today's podcast we will celebrate the 25th anniversary of scholar michelle roe trio's 1995 blockbuster book published by beacon press silence in the past power and production of history we are celebrating this monumental anniversary with a round table discussion with three of my favorite scholars out here in the world at Black Academia, Dr. Neil Roberts, Dr. Crystal Eddins, and Dr. Bradley Craig. Dr. Roberts is Chair and Professor of Africana Studies, Political Theory, and the Philosophy of Religion at Williams College, where Roberts also serves as the W. Ford Schumann Faculty Fellow in Democratic Studies. Dr. Eddins is an Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at UNC Charlotte, where her fields of research and teaching are African diaspora studies, historical sociology, social movements and contentious politics, postcolonial sociology, race and ethnicity, wom- women and gender studies, the 18th and 19th century Caribbean, and the digital humanities. Last and certainly not least, Dr. Bradley Craig is an interdisciplinary historian of the Atlantic world and the African diaspora with particular interests in slavery, intimacy, gender, and sexuality. His current book manuscript, Oathbound: The Trelawny Maroons of Jamaica and the Revolutionary Atlantic World, is a history of oath-making as a radical practice of negotiating intimacy and belonging. And Dr. Craig is currently a Barra postdoctoral fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies. I really hope Y'all enjoyed this conversation, because Lord knows I did. And thank y'all so much again for agreeing to chat with me about such a life-changing book. And to really kick our proceedings off for today in our conversation, let's start here. For each of you, can you describe your first encounter with silencing the past?
2: And we'll start with uh,
1: you, Dr. Craig.
2: Sure. Um, First, thank you again so much for having us um, on the podcast to discuss this really monumental book. Um, In terms of my own first encounter with silencing the past, um, I have to give a shout out to Caroline Light, the Director of Undergraduate Studies and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Harvard, who introduced me to this book. Um, I read it for the first time the summer after my sophomore year of college. Um, And my time as an undergrad um, was during the Obama era um, when I was sort of of flourished. First, flirting with the discipline of history. And this period roughly coincided, my time in college roughly coincided with Obama's first term. So, you know, it was in the context of this moment where there was this seeming promise of a post-racial era, right, that we were on the brink of with the election of the nation's first Black president, Um, but Mm -hmm. also the sort of beginning of many conversations that we've had in the decade and more since Around and struggles around race and policing that would define our nation over that period, um, beginning with um, the um, the arrest of Henry Louis Gates Jr. So I was a Harvard undergraduate, and this happened during the summer right before I started college, right. And so that was kind of a you know beginning bookend to that experience that would then you know culminate later in Black Lives Matter, uh, the you know killing of Trayvon Martin, these sort of um, big conversations again around. Um, racial violence and policing. Um, it was also at this time that I was reading, um, for the first time, work on slavery, like Jennifer Morgan's Laboring Women, Stephanie Smallwood's Saltwater Slavery, Vincent Brown's *Rivers Garden, which were all books that really helped me to understand that history was about more than just dates and facts, right, which is a point that ma- that trio makes in Silencing the Past. I um, mean, I was also reading City Hartman's Lose Your Mother. So... Overall, this was a very intellectually formative period for me. And it was a period that really sparked my interest in doing historical research. And Silencing the Past was sort of a guide, right, for how um, I eventually found myself doing that work, uh, my sort of archival reading practices, and the sort of significance that I attributed to historical scholarship.
1: Whew, <clears throat> that's a man. Look, this, this is how I know you, my friend. This is how I know you, my friend. Yo. <laughs> like such such a really interesting story that really provides me as your friend a really cool um introduction to um really how you in- encountered the book um i guess what, what would be that uh, about 10 years ago would it be mm-hmm. yeah okay very good so uh what about you Dr. Roberts what was your first encounter oh.
0: um i also want to begin by thanking you Adam for uh, having us all in, in, in intellectual communion. Um, I have to confess, I encountered the book later than I encountered the figure of Michelle Roth Chirillo. Uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago uh, and uh, did my doctor work in political science, but uh, there were no kind of, uh, kind of notable Caribbeanists in the department. Uh, And it was a program at the time that, uh, again, projecting into the future, hopefully if one were to then go to the, stay in the program and go to the dissertation stage, that um, it was possible to have a scholar who was outside of the department, at least have one member outside of the department on one's committee. So I'd actually gone to the university, uh, Trio was in the anthropology department, uh, and so I had gone there because I'd previously uh, encountered his book, Haiti, State Against Nation, The Origins and Legacy of Devaluerism. And so that's where I went. Uh, unfortunately, my, uh, uh, during that first year, uh, Trio had um, uh, a series in succession of, of strokes that led him with a brain aneurysm. And he really kind of fought that between the time I entered graduate school and uh, when he passed. Uh, and so uh, looking actually at the copy that I have with me of, uh, of Silenced in the Past, uh, it dates to the spring of my first year in graduate school. So, in some ways, I encountered this book and the larger corpus of trio in this moment in which you know uh, one has to respect, of course, people with uh, who are battling their own kind of health challenges. And so, in many regards, I I, I, I was learning uh, in the process. So that was my kind of encounter.
1: Wow, that that that's actually <clears throat> excuse me that's actually a really interesting story um in terms of you know how we all encounter at our different stages um the the text right um and and i'll get into um later about my own encounter but but yeah it's always interesting to you know think about the times at which and we encounter certain books and those particular times are um, s- supremely formative, right? Not just the actual book, that, but the actual time at which we encountered the book. So, um, yeah. So, so what about you, uh, Dr. Edens?
3: Hi, yeah. Um, so firstly, I want to just um, echo my colleagues and thank you all for, uh, thank you, Adam, for putting this together at the end of this kind of turbulent, turbulent year. Uh, I encountered um, trio during graduate school at MSU, I was taking courses in African American and African studies and in sociology, and was really just trying to uh, get my grounding in terms of how I wanted to understand and write about the Haitian Revolution. Um, I was really trying to get a sense of um, how to bring it, how to bring these two fields together, but also really just trying to understand what seemed to be a disconnect in the literature about the meaning and importance of Marinage and uh, Haitian Vodou before and during the revolution. So, you know, reading work like um, Carolyn Fick's uh, work, uh, Laurent Dubois and John Thornton, where they all kind of center Africans and and argued that Marinage and Vodou were organizing principles for the Haitian Revolution seemed kind of obvious to me, you know, coming from a diaspora studies perspective and reading the work of Haitian scholars. Uh, but this perspective didn't really seem readily accepted by other historians. And so I think silencing the past kind of came at a time to you know help me give to help give me insight to the ways that um, this African perspective had kind of been silenced. During the Haitian Revolution, um, as people were writing about it in the immediate aftermath, and even how contemporary scholars have, in some ways, continued to assume those positions, and so um, more recently, I've been, you know, continuing to grapple with it, especially in terms of how um, how sociological scholarship helps me think through the questions I have about the Haitian revolution, but also how Mm -hmm. the Haitian revolution helps me think through and even problematize, um, sociology as a, as an academic discipline that is, you know, grounded in certain concepts of, you know, modernity and consciousness, uh, revolutions, but haven't really dealt with the Haitian revolution in any, uh, real way.
1: Incredible. And, like, this is just really cool because one of the parts, one of the reasons, um, didn't tell y'all this, but um, one of the reasons why I chose the three of you in particular is because of your not only uh, interdisciplinary, but really multidisciplinary uh, approaches to the work, right? And, you know, and, and I think like that is actually um, one of the dopest parts about uh, Trio's uh, silencing in the past is that it speaks to so many different disciplines um you know i think that if you're doing a public history class and you're not assigning you know trios silence in the past you tripping <laughs> you, you tripping like let, let 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 let's do it y'all like this this ain't no game it's been 25 years y'all had y'all time let's do it um hopefully my advisor don't hear me say that but um <laughs> <laughs> but um you know so so trio's uh silence in the past seems also to have really like i said a huge following um in not just caribbean history or political theory or anthropo- anthropological circles really um and as a result you know i really saw um silence in the past really interestingly enough uh being invoked in light of really these you know as they say these twin Um, as I say, I believe, uh, pandemics of racism and also the coronavirus. Um, So with that being said, why do y'all believe so many people picked up uh, uh, silence in the past and and began invoking it um, this year due to, you know, the turmoil that has been largely 2020? Um, And so uh, we'll we'll start with, we'll we'll return to you, uh, Dr. Eddins, to answer this one first.
3: Yeah, I think, well, Trio really speaks to the reality of uh, historical silencing and narrative production in, in multiple contexts. Um, but I think in our present context, this book really does give um, a, a, an inside look at the power of the collective will to deny an obscure objective reality to rationalize and ignore mass casualties, and to continue the pursuit of labor exploitation in favor of narratives that preserve capital and preserve uh, whiteness. Um, So he gives us the dynamics of slavery, colonialism, and the Haitian Revolution as lenses through which we can understand the deeply embedded um, logics of racial capitalism that persist even into this moment and exclude other possibilities and life ways. Um, I mean, today is December 17th. Yesterday was one of the deadliest, uh, if not the deadliest day of the coronavirus with over 3,400 deaths, with Black folks being overrepresented in that death toll. Um, and yet we've continued to see resistance to very simple measures that would prevent the spread of COVID-19 from the presidency on down to, um, so, you know, protesters against those measures in places like Michigan and North Carolina, um, and even those who just refuse to wear masks. So I think it's, I think it's convenient to blame Donald Trump for the widespread dismissal of science and political authority, Um, It's tempting to think about blaming, you know, individual American individualism and ignorance, which is not false. Um, But I, I think that trio might say that there's something more insidious happening where the structures and patterns of our society lend to silencing the lives, the voices and the deaths of those who are considered surplus, expendable or marginal to the broader narratives that America wants to tell about itself. Whew. That,
1: that that's that's like i ain't got nothing to say i ain't got nothing to say that ends just broke down for us man um so so that's actually a great way to start because um this particular year like you said like it's so easy um and actually i think very problematic to just throw everything on um a uh, trump as you know he's a um, people brought him into power and <laughs> what over uh what over what 70 million people or or so still voted for him despite that all everything going on um which is still discouraged that we have to deal with um and so and so yeah th- thank you for for breaking down for us in that way um so so, so what about you um uh, dr roberts what, what 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 do you think you know why do you think that you know so many people invoked silence in the past um this this year
0: yeah there are several reasons. I mean, we have, what, 45 minutes to an hour? We could take a whole week, right, just to talk about this. But I, I think there are a few. One, and, you know, uh, I like to kind of work with particular texts to orient us. Um, you know, one of the, the kind of the chapters in uh, in the book, uh, chapter three, is called Unthinkable of History. And so I think uh, in terms of the several reasons of why there seems to be this either returning to silence in the past or uh, or first encounters, With the book, uh, is Chirio's attempt to number one try and ascertain unthinkable uh, events, as was just stated. You're talking about not only the coronavirus, but also the response or lack of a response from questions of leadership, right? Uh, uh, The denial uh, of science, right? The uh, the what we may call the distinction between fact and truth. If fact is understood as, if we could understand fact as a empirical, um, uh, quality and truth as uh, an objective and truth as subjective, right? The truth is what one kind of manufactures. Then there are these unthinkable events and, and responses to it that have collapsed fact and truth. And so, uh, I believe this is on 26 uh, of the text where trio writes when he's trying to think about not only the unthinkable, but, but, but invite us to meditate on what is history, right? Who does history? What are archives? Right? These questions of events and trio writes silences enter the processes of historical production at four crucial moments. The first, he says, the moment of fact creation, that is the making of sources. Secondly, the moment of fact assembly, that is the making of archives. Third, the moment of fact retrieval, that is the making of narratives. And fourth, which is what I love. And the fourth, the moment of retrospective significance, that is the making of history, italicized in the final instance. We've seen this with the 1619 uh, project, that is not merely uh, about uh, the figure of Nicole Hannah Jones, but a larger project to then, in many regards, co- get rid of this collapse between truth and fact um, that I was suggesting. But also, perhaps implicitly, that project um, is, is is trying to ascertain facets of the unthinkable, trying to make sense of uh, trying to make sense of uh, of events. Uh, and then, you know, there's also just last kind of opening point. This is just beautiful writing, just downright, right? This is not, I mean, yes, this is in many regards, this already came up. This book is significant in the mid-1990s because it didn't invent, right, discussions of the Haitian Revolution, but it gave an interdisciplinary and lay audience uh, a detailed account of the Haitian Revolution, but also we have to forget this is this was 1995. It also was reflecting a few years before, on the few years before of the quincentenary of Columbus's so-called arrival, or what or trio said stumbled upon right uh, the Antilles, trying to make sense of as Sylvia Winter said, the kind of 1492 a new world view of the world, um, and in the interstices of that the Haitian Revolution is central, but also it's just a model of just wonderful writing about really difficult topics. So I'll I'll stop there as a way of opening, but I think there's several reasons, but I think this question of fact versus truth, how we understand unthinkable events, how do we actually think about history? And as an anthropologist in his case, writing history, do you have to have a PhD or a master's or an advanced degree in it? His answer would be no. But how do we actually distinguish these questions of creation and narrative and archive and ultimately history, not big H. But uh, history, small h, and how we each can wrestle with it um, in our lives and what we forget in those silences uh, as a result of that, right?
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for taking us to to that particular uh, passage. It's definitely one of the most significant, uh, really, I I would say the entire text. So uh, uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Roberts. Um, All right. And so what about you, uh, Dr. Craig?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I'd say it's definitely an interesting time to be a historian for a lot of different reasons, many of which are, you know, reflected in uh, Trio's project in Silencing the Past. And I think that, you know, it's not just about why now, but I think for a lot of people, why so long, right? So, you know, the sort of Mm -hmm. why 2020 Mm -hmm. question um, is interesting, not just because of Of the things that have happened in 2020, but because of people's efforts to locate this particular historical moment within a long history, right, of racial injustice and um, a long Black freedom struggle. Um, So, you know, the the 12-month calendar year is only one particular way of, you know, understanding these sort of historical processes, but it's also about the 400 years plus, right, of global transformation um, that we find ourselves in the midst of. Um, so what we've seen is, you know, this series of disputes about, um, about statues and monuments and, you know, so-called public history more broadly that's connected to these much more immediate um, and also ongoing struggles for racial and racial justice and, you know, for, um, you know, about activists' attempts to locate themselves within um, a much longer history of struggles for freedom. Um, so it's about how we collectively make meaning from a shared sense of the past um, it's also, you know, to think about our own context as academics, um, right now in 2020, um, we're seeing, you know, a sort of moment and ongoing battles over ethnic studies in the academy and the politics of knowledge within the university, which mm-hmm. silence in the past really gives us tools to think about. Um, it's about the ability of institutions to render certain forms of knowledge and labor disposable or silent or invisible, right? Um, and so these are all part of um, why this um, why this text has such a grasp um on us as we continue to work through these problems.
1: Yeah, and you can even see it as recent as a few days ago, um, in terms of your your point about um particular forms of 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 work that that's being silenced, right? We see what's happening um at the University of Mississippi or old miss for for most folks who who know about the school, um, with what happened uh, with uh, Dr. Garrett Felber. Um, who I had on a few months ago uh, during the summertime uh, with what's going on in terms of uh, him, I guess, effectively being fired. But, you know, we'll, we'll let the dust settle with that one. But, um, but, yeah, just an example of really what you're talking about in this kind of year, um, especially when uh, certain um, people, f- you know, born and raised in New Jersey but now live in Paris discussing this thing, this CC called cancel culture. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll we'll just leave that uh, chat to someone else. But um, because you know, I we ain't, we ain't, I ain't got the bandwidth for all that. But um, it's <laughs> turning um, it's a different podcast. Uh, look, look, and, and maybe got some bourbon on deck too. But uh, you know, we'll we'll leave that for another time. Um, but but actually, I, actually I, I, you I,
0: mind if I jump in real quick? Uh, hey, just just hey, because of what yeah. you
1: what you just said, which is um you know,
0: what's the subtitle of this book? Trio's book, Power and the Production of History mm-hmm. and, um because you were just mentioning this what seems to be this unfolding kind of case, right of a of a faculty member who uh, it appears, right? I don't know all the details, but appears was kind of fired for speaking of that fact truth distinction, right for illuminating facts, right kind of empirical kind of. Uh, realities and was uh, effectively terminated um, because of pressure, I would imagine, from boards or kind of different kind of uh, uh, individuals at the institution for whom, uh, especially with regards to kind of prisons and the prison industrial complex, for whom profiting right from that uh, worked against the scholarship of this particular figure. So uh, I don't want to just focus on this kind of old miscase case, but um, why there is a why there might be a resonance and why that wasn't even i wouldn't even say um kind of tangential is that it is you know trio's text you know over time has um, has really kind of brought to bear differing wrestlings with you know power in the 1850s it was within the u.s context notions of the slave power that kind of oligarchical right particularly kind of planter class that hold held an asymmetric Uh, hold on the country due to the kind of the three-fifths compromise to in the 60s and 70s questions of uh, kind of black power nationalisms uh, questioning uh, the kind of the resurgence of a form of slave power to to, to kind of with trio the sense of how do we um, kind of wrestle with both in and outside the academy with um, kind of power structures and do we have to either censor ourselves or do we have to cancel or do we have to um, do we have to, you know, how do we actually wrestle with kind of power if it means, or as, as Saeed said, kind of in terms of speaking truth to power, if it's about trying to illuminate the world we live in and trying to, uh, uh to, to kind of, um, really enable everyone to be able to live a free life. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and you know your your own work that that, has, that is actually a good um, transition um, into the next question. Really turning to everyone here, everyone's work here. Um, so, turning to your own work, how was the concept of silences as trio invoked throughout the text? Um, you know, how did y'all encounter that in your own work? Right? How does the concept of, of silence and silencing um, find its way into your own work as well. And so for that one, we'll start with, we'll, we'll return to you, Dr. Roberts.
0: Um, sure, I'll, I'll kind of maybe briefly say it so they can have others kind of um, respond. But, um, you know, Trio's idea of silencing ended up entering my work, uh, particularly my first book, Freedom is Marinage, because I was trying to think about uh, with the Haitian Revolution as central, um, though not exclusively, what does it mean to kind of wrestle with events that, um, in which either because of a lack of archival uh, material or uh, or for whatever reason, had been silenced out of the historical uh, and social and political? You know, registers and what did it mean to kind of unsilence? That's how it entered. But this was one of those kind of friendly engagements with individual's work where you kind of depart, um, because I think that with maybe not necessarily Trio uh, himself, but the deployments of Trio's work, uh, I ended up kind of engaging more with a different concept: uh, the concept of disavow, which I take to be both. Uh, a willful acknowledgment and rejection of an event, because by acknowledging particular events in history, uh, that may very much kind of undermine the narratives that we actually tell about our, you know, about ourselves. And so, one of the things I tried to wrestle with, and I'll just end here on this question, is that I wanted to try and figure out to what degree was Churio using the language of silence, but in sometimes perhaps there was a little bit of slippage between. Um, because uh, it seems like what he was getting at was closer, at times, was closer to a disavowal. He was trying to think about, because um, even when the Haitian Revolution was unfolding and in its immediate aftermath, there is records nationally, regionally, and internationally about what was going on, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. why were we not in the wake of it decades afterwards and you know, uh, and then the decades afterwards not engaging with it? That's very different, you follow? That—that—that's that, that's, that there actually mm-hmm. are archives and accounts but the failure to actually engage with that um, perhaps is something different than merely the kind of not actually speaking of of something. So for me, silencing is very powerful because beyond just the the kind of the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to 1804, it allows us to um, kind of reconcile, I think, with with um with with the failure to speak or to address or the inability to kind of uh, have an archive of certain kind of events and actions, while at the same time maybe bringing up certain events that were actually not so much silence, but kind of disavowed, and what are the kind of the traumatic effects of the disavowal of revolutionary uh, uprisings and other activities uh, in our kind of, in our present, so, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, for, for this question, um, how, does, how does this question of silence um, really, interact with your own work and also even about um, was the concept even new to you when you first encountered it, Um, Dr. Craig?
2: Yeah, so um, it was certainly new to me. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I sort of uh, first encountered the book, you know, as an undergraduate before I had any sort of formal methodological training in history. Um, And so, you know, it certainly shaped my practices of historical interpretation my archi- archival reading practices. Um, I'm currently working on my first book, Oathbound, The Trelawney Maroons of Jamaica and the Revolutionary Atlantic World. And um, in that project where I'm following this group of maroons across Jamaica, Nova Scotia, and Sierra Leone, I'm relying on a British colonial archive, right, that consists of sources um, that were um, primarily not produced by the maroons themselves. Yet I'm interested mm-hmm. in thinking about um, the Maroons' own perspective, right, on those events and their own sort of political ideology. Um, and so trio's work helped me to think about how, you know, in, even in the moment when, um, you know, sources are created, they are part of a struggle and a contestation over, you know, meanings of previously occurring events. Um, so, you know, in that, in that book, I try to um, sort of practice this method, right, of reading sources and, um, to sort of counteract, right, whatever silences or disavowals um, might emerge, right. No source is a transparent window into the past, of course, but I think that Tru's work in silencing in the past, silencing the past, really helps us to think about how sources are artifacts of historical power, and when you are, you know, producing a historical narrative, you are talking about the the struggles, right, both historically and ongoing, um, over. Um, you know the significance of those events and how they reflect a certain set of power relations
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no and that that's that's an that's a great particular answer um because you know all of our work i think can really enter i think all of our work can really speak to silence we're effectively all right about black people so lord knows that you know in terms of how we can use a text like you know silence in the past right and and you know the 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 power and the production of history history is being produced every day um and there's always these contestations and you know just trying to think about and it's really where this question was because a lot of my questions you know that i that i end up asking in, in um for the podcast, largely are things that I'm thinking about myself, right? In terms of how does the production of history intersect with the kind of work that I want to do about, you know, 18th century, um, black women in, um, the, the, in the mid Atlantic States, uh, the colonies of of, uh, what would become the United States. And so, um, so yeah, this, this is all, Really, all, all suffice to say, this is all helping me for my dissertation pr- uh, proposal. So, uh, thank y'all so much. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so uh, we'll 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 end this question uh, with you, uh, Dr. Addins, as, as well. So, I'm, I'm really I'm super super interested to hear uh, your perspective on this question.
3: Yeah, so uh, as a first-generation college student and, and grad student, there was definitely a, a lot about the process of knowledge production that I didn't know. Um, so, you know, reading, silencing the past, um, and kind of thinking about it as an expose, if you will, on um, the mechanics of writing history really um, demystified the process of historical work. Um, so it was certainly, you know, new to me Um in terms of thinking about how knowledge is constructed uh, but the the connections between the the di- well the way he explains the the connections and disconnects between the actions and actors of history and then those who write about it i think helped to give me support um, to my inclination to just decide on what story I wanted to tell, which was to try to bring the perspective of enslaved people and maroons to the forefront and to try to do uh, my best to to tell it. And so that's something that I um, am leaning on a lot in my current b- book that I'm working on, Rituals, Runaways, and the Haitian Revolution, African Diaspora Collective Action. Um, And I I really kind of lean on this idea of uh, trivialization um, as part of silencing, where he Trio talks about the ways that plantation owners and then subsequent writers and and even contemporary scholars um, not only marginalize the voices of uh, the subaltern of the enslaved, um, but also trivialize or try to depoliticize any of their resistance actions. And so um, similar to what uh, Bradley talked about with his work on the, the Trelawney Maroons, I'm also interested in looking at the Haitian Maroons and trying to use the existing sources kind of against themselves to re, um, re-approach or try to understand patterns of insurgency and subjectivity. Um, kind of against the grain so to speak
1: all very fascinating it and and it there just there just seems to be so so much great work um being done uh on maroons and and, and Marinage, um right now so obviously we have two people three people doing the work right now obviously um and then you know uh, dr Sarika sarah jessica uh johnson um at u chicago and um, uh, Dr. Marcus Nevius at, uh, Rhode Island or as a, I think Providence college or university of Rhode Island, I think. Um, so, um, I'm just excited to, to, to keep on reading. So, uh, y'all, y'all are gonna, uh, hopefully be on uh, new books in FM in the years, uh, to come as well. So looking forward to that. Um, and so also one of the parts that seems, you know, I'd referenced this before that, um, in the past popularity um, in, in a number of fields is really unquestionable. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, touched on this a bit, but I'm interested again to know your answer, uh, specifically on this one. Um, can you explain why you think silence in the past wields so much power in how various scholars produce history and historical knowledge? Um, and this is also with the acknowledgement that, you know, not everyone is necessarily engaging it, but I would say that there's definitely been an uptick. Um, in in even COVID nineteen and twenty twenty notwithstanding. So So um, we'll we'll start with uh, you, uh, Doctor Roberts.
0: You know that's a a great question and a difficult one to answer. Why are there certain texts that seem to have a particular resonance when they do? If I got the the essence of your question right, um, and why is it that silencing the past is having uh, the particular resonance um, that it uh, that it is. I don't have a singular. Um, I don't have a singular. You know, answer. But what I what I do believe, given what was kind of said by our by your other guests, is um, not only the kind of the resurgence of kind of social movements. Uh, the uh, kind of Black Lives Matter, the Movement for Black Lives uh, trio, while not using the language and sounds in the past, but very much uh, implicit in the book of talking about the kind of the Haitian Revolution and different uh, kind of actors and agents. And what does it mean to kind of talk about questions of black and blackness? Uh, it has a significance because especially, I mean, I, I, I one of the, the aspects of of this book, not just the beauty of the writing, but the structure. Can we talk about this for a second? You know, because most of the chapters, most of the chapters begin with Trio doing something kind of autobiographical, whether he's talking about being in the classroom or some type of instance, right? Being in Port-au-Prince or or somewhere. And then the chapter then commences. You have this kind of italicized text, and then you have the main body of the, you know, of the chapter. So it's a certain type of, even at the level of structure, it's a certain type of form of writing that even when so much of it is uh, about kind of, not only the Haitian Revolution, but about Haiti, it is also um, trio at the time reflecting because he completed this um, when before he was at Chicago, when he was at Johns Hopkins University, uh, when he's trying to kind of wrestle with how does one talk about Caribbean thought and modern Caribbean thought in the context of not just historically black colleges and universities, but also non historically black, uh, right, non HBCUs. Um, there, so there's kind of one, you know, one reason going back to an earlier comment about. Uh, about monuments, I actually, this is something that I didn't even notice, um, perhaps embarrassingly so until, um, until uh, uh, right up before we started this kind of podcast, the last couple of pages of this book is almost prophesying out of the different debates and, uh, and, and unfolding events regarding questions of monuments and statues, right? Should monuments and statues that are dedicated to figures that it, uh, at, at certain period of times had uh, one type of status and then our contemporary moment, uh, uh, there might be many who find them objectionable. And so in the second to last pages, this is when Trio is talking about um, the, uh, he says, um, "You know, in the second to last page, I was in Port-au-Prince when Columbus disappeared. <laughs> and then the last paragraph is just astonishing, where he writes, he says, um, Columbus had a different fate. For reasons still unknown to me, perhaps the illiterate demonstrators associated his name with colonialism. The mistake, if the mistake there was, is understandable. The word colon, K-O-L-O-N, is, in transliteration in Haitian means both Columbus and a colonist. Perhaps they associated him with the ocean from which he came. At any rate, when the angry crowd from the neighboring shanty towns rolled down Harry Truman Boulevard, they took the statue of Columbus, removed it from the pedestal, and dumped it into the sea. That's the last line of the book. And I could not help when rereading this. Think about what unfolded in Bristol, United Kingdom, right? With the figure of Edward Colston. I've always been fascinated. A lot of people are fascinated with London and other places. I've always been fascinated with... Bristol and Liverpool, mainly because for those of us who work on slavery and the slave trade, right, different forms of slavery, right, Liverpool uh, had different kind of shipments and dockings of slaves leaving, whereas Bristol was where this traders, right, built with the funding, right, for those ships, right, for those, uh, for those, uh, for those slavers. And the figure of El- Edward Colston, who is all over, or was all over the city of Bristol, that made its money, its, its capital off of the slave trade, the University of Bristol, brilliant institution at the same time, statues and names all over. And then to see protesters in the wake of, right, uh, the kind of public lynching of George Floyd, then even days later, having this statue, right, where protesters then not only took it down, but what did they do? They dumped the statue into the river, right? <laughs> you know? To your question, in other words, why is there a residence? I can't really pin down why. There seems to be because for some people it might be a fad, right? Quite frankly, let's call it like this. it is. Might be a fad, but for others, this is life and death, right? And um, and and why is it that 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 at this particular conjuncture, um, uh, we see this in South Africa too, with the roads must fall, fees must fall movement, and all over the world, at this moment, for whatever reason, there has been this kind of reckoning with what statues and monuments mean—not consensus, but a reckoning. And so that that example to something in a passage that was at the end and had always stared me in the face that somehow I never ever seemed to have appreciated in my prior encounters uh, up until returning to it again this week um, means that there's certain texts that have a kind of a prophetic quality even if the authors themselves reject prophecy. Right. And uh, so again, that's my non-systematic attempt to at least say maybe not the reason, but maybe a reason why certain passages, certain approaches, uh, ways of kind of styles of writing, and uh, and then also just the kind of growing and continuing work on not just Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, but as our kind of distinguished kind of panelist's own work is showing, important work on thinking about kind of maroons, marinais, both in Nali Saint-Domingue, but also the circum kind of Caribbean. And uh, Trio was really a guide when some people didn't want to hear it, right?
1: Indeed. No, that was that was a great um th- thank thank you for taking us across the pond real quick. Um because that I had actually forgotten about the the Colston um uh, statue and 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 what seemed to be 40 covid years ago. Um and so uh thank th- thank you for 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 invoking that. Um and so uh, uh Dr. Eddins can can you also um speak to to this particular question? Um, uh, building off of uh, what Dr. Roberts just, just discussed?
3: Sure. I mean, I, I think he you know answered the, the question really greatly. But um, just to add on a little bit, I would say that the, the book really does resonate so much, probably because it ultimately calls upon us as uh, scholars, but just producers of knowledge in general, to really hold ourselves accountable to the truth, um, d- despite how uncomfortable or inaccessible that might seem. Um, so I feel like, you know, scholars, writers, researchers uh, really become a part of Trio's treatise in a way that I imagine goes beyond, you know, other intellectual histories um, by demonstrating the power of the pen in shaping not just academic discourses, but entire worldviews about the past, present, and future. Um, And, you know, like Neil just mentioned, you know, the book is beautifully written, it's clearly written, it's convincingly written, um, and that the imperatives that it deploys also seem accessible to anyone who is serious about meaning, about history and its meanings.
1: Definitely, definitely. And, and, And you're right, it's definitely a text that really calls us to be accountable. Um, and this is something that I tweeted about a couple of days ago about you know what who, like ultimately who are we accountable to right when we produce our uh, our work and you know communities that we're effectively writing about um, who who's holding us accountable in terms of our academic communities, um, intellectual communities but also um, the people that, might not nece- might not necessarily read our books, but, you know, how are we engaging our work to be, you know, used by the public in a particular way, too, is I think is a, always an interesting question. um, And also different forms of publics, too. Not all publics are the same and, and need the same thing. So so that's a, that's definitely a great, great answer. um, And uh, and, and what about you, uh, Dr. Craig? What, what about your uh, particular thoughts on on this on this question?
2: Yeah, in terms of um, trios continued influence, um, and also the question you just raised of accountability, one thing I want to flag is this conversation—a very important conversation—having right now in the history of slavery around slavery archives and the politics of knowledge. Um, and so that's a conversation that's very much, um, you know, in dialogue with silencing the past. It's certainly in dialogue with the work of Saidi Hartman. Um, and, of course, I have to shout out uh, Marisa Fuentes, right, and her book, Dispossessed Lives, which is an important touchstone in that conversation as well, in addition to Jennifer Morgan's published and forthcoming work. Um, and so, you know, accountability not only to the living, right, but to the people um, we're writing about, right, to the historical figures um, whose lives sort of um, are at the center of our projects. Um, so it's about this question of how to write an ethical history and, um, from an archive that is shaped, you know, so materially by violence and histories of dispossession. Um, And I think that, um, you know, uh, silencing the past offers uh, a really important starting point for the conversation that has really been pushed forward in crucial ways by Black feminist scholars and historians of slavery.
1: You are so right. Definitely shout out Dr. Uh, Fuentes. You know, her work is... One that I think is in 20 years, we're going to have a conversation about uh, similar to the one that we're having now um, in terms of, you know, how how one uses her uh, particular work. And I think in a similar way um, as um, as uh, a as trio. Um, so 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 that definitely thank you for highlighting um, the, this particular debate. Because I also think about it, the podcast that we're doing now as almost an archive in and of itself. Uh, while discussing uh, particular debates that are happening now, and for people to, you know, listen to in 5, 10, 20, 100 years. Um, So so I think that's actually an interesting way to think about the production of history that we're even doing right now. and so um you know a, a couple of you mentioned this before but um you know we we see silencing the past footnoted in countless monographs but i wonder if we give the text enough focus as a pedagogical tool as well so do you use silencing the past in your courses um undergrad or grad um a, a course that you teach or really imagine a useful way to teach undergrad and grad students uh with this particular text Um, And so we'll return back to you, Dr. Craig, um, for for this particular question.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a fantastic question. And um, it's absolutely true that this is a book that has a lot of lessons about pedagogy. Um, And I think that's one of the ways that um, my reading of it has shifted over the years as I um, have thought more explicitly about teaching. Um, It's been a, a text that I've returned to not only to assign to students who tend to respond to it quite well, but also to think about my own teaching philosophy I you know, quoted in my you know, teaching statement. Um, and I think that, you know, um, Neil mentioned the sort of autobiographical moments that appear in the book. Um, and those were really helpful in helping me to think about how students come to classes on slavery and Black history, diasporic histories more broadly. Um, now, especially with a sense of urgency, right, and questions that are informed by their own experiences and the things that they're seeing around them, um, so while you know maybe the Haitian Revolution isn't so new to students anymore who grew up in the U.S. context, I find more and more students do have some sort of basic knowledge of the Haitian Revolution right now. There is a sense of this you know sort of personal importance of history. Um, the idea, he says, I'm paraphrasing, but um, you know we all need hist- uh, histories that no you know history book can provide us, right? And so it's about what's, for me, it's about what's really happening in the classroom when we're talking about Black histories, right, Um, and histories of Black resistance, and, you know, what are the the histories that my students need right now, right? What are the things that they Mm -hmm. um, want and need to learn, um, and how um, can I, you know, help guide them through that? And also think about how, um, you know, the pressing questions that they have about the world around them are also, in some ways, important historical questions, right, and are in dialogue with, um, you know, um, historiographical conversations that have been going on for generations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's su- such a great one because, you know, when we first encountered the text, we we were students and now we are teaching and producing, you know, students and graduate students ourselves. So, you know, it's a, it's a different reading. It's why, you know, we all read texts multiple times because when we encounter them, we're at different stages in our lives and our careers. Um, so 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 definitely thank you for such an um, an amazing um, answer Dr. Craig. Um, and, and so what about you uh, Dr. Eddins like what do you think in terms of you know this question of uh, teaching and pedagogy in in uh, silencing the past and its uh, uh, utility?
3: Yeah, I think that it is something that is an, a, an important tool for uh, for pedagogy. I haven't been able to teach it just yet, but I'm still trying to you know figure out like how I would fit it into uh, some of the courses that I do have or courses that I would you know teach in the future. Um, but for me, the the chapter that I especially like and would love to tackle would be the three faces of Sans Souci, um, especially in thinking about a course on you know Haiti and the Atlantic world, for example. Uh, because I think that this chapter really helps to unpeel the layers of how, you know, social positions and social hierarchies can inform historical narratives in non-objective ways and then continue to further legitimate structures of inequality. Um, So that chapter really lends to an account of the Haitian revolution that uproots the story of the enslaved African, the maroon, Ah, uh, the former slave or other subaltern figures, uh, more generally, and places them at the center of the story, um, and that's the kind of work that I aim to do in my scholarship, and that's what I would, you know, like to, you know, impart to students, especially being a part of uh, Black Studies or Africana Studies.
1: No, that that's that's definitely important because you know we're we're going to be in this uh, in this game for a long time, so uh, silence in the past would be. Uh, relevant on its 25th anniversary is 45th and, and the numbers go on. So, um, definitely, uh, definitely excited to, to hear more, uh, going forward about, um, uh, about your use of, of the text too. Um, and, uh, and even for my, for myself, how, 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 I'll, how, I will use it at a later point too, uh, once I cross over into the threshold of, uh, Dr. McNeil, you know, just wait on it, as they say. Um, and so um, what about you, uh, Dr. Roberts? What, what do you think in terms of um, uh, teaching um, silence in the past?
0: Yeah. It reminds me uh, of, uh, of a line that the Ethiopian thinker Teojos Kiros once wrote. He said, great books like uh, old glasses of wine mature with the sands of time. <laughs> so this is one of oh, them. And yeah, I know you have to let that marinate for a second intellectually. Um, but uh, I, I just want to First, echo Crystal's important um, point about the 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 three faces of Sun Tzu's chapter. That's actually the ch- the chapter that I felt like I learned the most. Not that I didn't learn throughout the book, but it was one of those where I was like, I thought I knew certain pieces of information. What is this, right? Um, and uh, and it's just it's just wonderful. To the question of um, you know pedagogy, uh, you know, I recently. Um, Decided to do what I always do when I want to get some answers that I can't answer myself regarding black social and political thought, which is take to social media. (laughs) So I put a simple question, which was, (laughs) is there a book or article that you believe is, um, some people pushed back, I said by a brilliant thinker, and they said, well, what's brilliant? So I I kind of modified it. But someone, a figure who you admire, um, who you've engaged with their work, but actually haven't taught in the classroom. And for me, there are three texts that particularly were the case, and especially in the last several years, having uh, 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 taught at at a liberal arts college, there were three works that this was the case. Um, One, Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism. The second, Sylvia Winters' novel, The Hills of Hebron. And the third, the one that we're talking about, Michelle Rolf Trios' Silencing the Past. And so the first two I've recently been able to teach in curricula. But Silencing the Past is one of these books that I have and will continue to recommend to students and just have not yet figured out the best way to uh, to do so, but I want to. <laughs> and uh, and And I think part of it is because it is a text in which not just a chapter, but within a chapter, one could spend so much time. So I've wrestled with, is this a book that, do you assign a chapter from it? Is this a book that you assign the entirety of it? I'm less confident that I would do justice in a non upper level class, being able to simply assign the entirety of the book and then get into all the nuances with even advanced undergraduates, but I could be dead wrong. I would love to get help and insight from those who have done it. But, um, but, but definitely in terms of suggesting to students who are doing kind of research projects, but also, going back to that question of you know, writing for first and second year undergraduates, and I think even this would be applicable to doctoral students as well, that, um, that uh, regardless of the actual focus of the, uh, of the material, this is just, um, it's a, a good model to think about how to do serious uh, uh, historiography theory and, um, and, and, and argumentation. And uh, and so I'm still trying to kind of figure that out, but I I, I I think it goes back to what came up earlier, which is we encounter different works at different stages of our 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 life. This is the first, I'll end with, this was the first year that I taught it within the Introduction to Africana Studies, a course that I've taught several times in different iterations. This was the first year that I taught Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, in that class, right? At the end, uh, as the last um, reading, that we did and it had a resonance with myself and my students. Now, I don't know if it would have had the same resonance at another point, but in this seemingly like apocalyptic post uh, in which Afro pessimism seems to be so prevalent, right? All around the country uh, or in different parts of the quarters of the world. And yet in parable of the sower, like with trio, there is this kind of hope in the unseen or maybe hope is not the right word, but a sense in which we don't have to sugarcoat our reality, right? Um, but that, is it possible to still think about the future when at an institutional level at a political economic level right at a moral and philosophical level there are so many forces that want to tell us we are not human right and and to still kind of push through that so perhaps it is a fear that i have of wanting to not get this book wrong for students but maybe i need to just get over that and and just um and take the kind of the the leap but i do think it's important however we understand pedagogy which is is it assigning or is it at least just like exposing um students and, and let's say colleagues i keep saying students but colleagues and family members to, you know to this work i think this is a work that anyone like that that, that different people can engage with in their own all or in part um and so yeah i mean i think if anything it's revealing the challenges that we have as as educators but um i think that's a great challenge if we're even talking about it right
1: indeed yeah no 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 you're you're definitely right about that um you know it's definitely um a good thing that we are here discussing the the text in particular and so i think the other thing too um you know kind of zooming out from the text too and uh, looking in at the scholar himself um, I'm interested to know how y'all uh, think about this. So please describe in as much detail um, as you feel comfortable. Um, what does trio and silence in the past means to you, and why? And um, we'll 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 start with uh, Dr. Edens.
3: Um, I would say to me, the book helps me really think about the mission of uh, Black Studies. You know, going back to our conversation about accountability. Um, who am I writing for? It forces me to think about who I'm writing for, um, who I'm writing about, and how to represent those realities. Um, being a North American African American woman writing about um, Haitian history, there's already been, you know, contention within the literature that are kind of shaped by um, national origins or or the the scholars nationalities and the ways that they perceive, um, the, the archive and approach the archive and write about what they're, what they're reading. And so I feel like this book has become a part of, um, a canon for me, so to speak, in terms of, um, a mission to, Kind of deconstruct certain Eurocentric modes of thought and, and recentering the the thoughts, practices, and lifeways of Black peoples, and so and and you know obviously Haitian peoples in particular. Um, but I think that what Trio has presented and what what Neil and and Bradley have spoken to really well is um, the applicability of these ideas beyond just the context of Haiti and the Haitian Revolution.
1: of accountability seems to be one that we um, constantly re- uh, return to, which is actually in and of itself really an important uh, part too. Um, and so, what about you, uh, Dr. Craig? What do you think in terms of you know the, the the text and the and and the man himself, right? What what is what do they mean to you in terms of uh, of your own work and your formation as a scholar? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that the work really. Um, helped me to sort of locate a sense of purpose, right, in my scholarship. Um, you know, I think that it played a role in me coming to think of myself as a, you know, both as a diasporic subject, right, and also a scholar of the African diaspora. Um, and one, you know, to follow up on what Crystal was saying, who's skeptical of these histories, right, oriented toward the nation and towards questions of U.S. exceptionalism. Um, and I also want to say, you know, he also published important work beyond silencing the past that I've had the good fortune to encounter, Um as a graduate student in particular. Um, and his work, you know, really draws our attention to the central place of the Caribbean and the formation of the modern world, uh, which is, you know, something that's very important to me um, as a historian of the African diaspora and the Atlantic world. Um, so, you know, his book Global Transformations is very pivotal in that in that regard. Um, so I hope, you know, that people who listen to this podcast are inspired not only to revisit or pick up Silencing the Past for the first time, but also to spend some time with his other work as well.
1: Thank you. Book recommendations are ones that, uh, you know, I love giving. So, uh, you know, in the season of of giving, thank you for giving to the people, Dr. Craig. Um, so definitely, definitely good, um, for, for highlighting, uh, trio's other work, but I also wonder on a side note, what happens when someone is only known for a work when they've done so much more. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, so thank you for, for calling us to, to his other work. So, um, and, and so what about you, uh, Dr. Roberts? What, what do you think in terms of you know, what this work means to you and also uh, the particular man himself?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would just say two things. One, it let me know that I was not alone. And two, I think it let others know that they are not alone. And what do I mean is that encountering sounds in the past let me know that I wasn't crazy want to be interested in Caribbean thought and African American philosophy and European political theory and history and their convergences right? and processes of creolization um, that you could actually do that type of, uh, of work and it already came up earlier in terms of the responses um, by Crystal and Bradley with regards to audience right, and accountability that um, you know, who are we writing for it seems like a very simple question, but but for many um, scholars and especially scholars of color and Black scholars in particular, um, that question of you know who are we writing for, as we are not only going through graduate school or if it's relevant for some postdoc or tenure track or even tenured faculty, you know who is our audience? First is saying what are we trying to write about? And who do we want to read it? I mean, it's great if everyone can read it, but like, who? How is it? Like, who? Who are we writing for? And um, before there was an African American Intellectual Historical Society, before there was a Caribbean Studies Association, before there was a Caribbean Philosophical Association, before there were different organizations uh, dedicated to the work of Black anthropologists, there was a book like this, and. Um, and it has, as Hazel Carby has kind of written in the updated edition, that it has it's had its its kind of afterlives, right? Uh, and it will continue uh, as right. Marissa Fuentes came up as well. You know, uh, uh, the work of Fuentes and others will will have their own kind of afterlives. But I think, really, point blank for me, it, 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 I felt like I was seen. And also, I don't know if you all have been watching the series, kind of Small acts, You know, the kind of Steve McQueen kind of films um, on the kind of the West Indian or the kind of Caribbean uh, kind of influence in kind of um, uh, the UK. But it's one of those where, you know, watching that series, it's one of those where I said, um, one feels seen, right? And, uh, uh, or people that one knew, you can see are being seen and represented in ways that for so long they were not, right? And uh, and so that's that that's, that's I, I could answer it differently, but I, I think that's actually the one that has the most um, meaning because as was said, this is an inspirational work. Um, but let's be clear, the work is not calling on us to do mimesis. It's not about reproduction and saying true. You are wonderful. Everything you said is exactly right and perfect, right? Because um, there's there's that sometimes that is the case. That but I didn't I don't take this book to be doing that at all because going back to audience and what does he want to do? That's not his project in this, right? He's not trying to tell you how smart he is or you think Trio is or was. Um, he had a certain set of preoccupations, and then he wants us to wrestle with it. And if that has meaning, however the chips may fall, then the work was a success. And I think that that's, for me, um, what this work continues to do and what it did from the first time, however belated I encountered it.
1: hmm yeah, no, and and that's important. And it's actually a great way to transition into our final few questions here. Um, as we wrap up. Um, to say the least, right, 2020 has been tumultuous, largely. Yet many of us head into 2021 with cautious hope and even optimism for the future. Um, we have uh we have people getting uh, vaccines for the first time for to so we'll we'll see what happens with that. So for for y'all, right, to deliver to the audience that's listening, like my mother, hey, mom, I know you're listening. Um, what lessons do you think Silence in the Past offers us about how we should narrate the year of 2020 with the power and production of history in mind? And so we'll, we'll start with uh, Dr. Craig on this one.
2: Yeah, um, that's such a good question. I mean, I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive in terms of saying how people should or should not narrate the year. Um, you know, I think that people will find their way to the narratives that feel most meaningful to them. But um, I do think, you know, we early in the conversation, right, we talked about the context of the the global pandemic. And I think that, you know, there's a tendency there to focus on the numbers, right. Um, but I think it's important to think about, you know, the histories of grief, Of mourning and systemic disregard that are embedded in those facts and figures. Um, They're not these sort of, you know, disembodied numbers that tell a reality, right? Um, But it's about the sort of social and political context in which all these things happen. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that I've seen is sort of a minimization, right, of the pain and suffering that a lot of people are experiencing right now. Um, So I think that it's important to hold that um, together with a sense of, um, as you put it, this cautious. Optimism that we have for the future, um, not only you know, sort of moving past, but also you know, building new structures and right, new institutions that can um, enable a better sense of collective care and support for people who are most vulnerable in our society.
1: Whew. You said a word right there, and and thank you for um, discussing kind of like the numbers debate. Right, we're, we're all historian, uh, we're all historians and writers and people who have engaged histories of, of the slave trade in, 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 different ways, even just reading. And so when you said that, it reminded me of like, you know, in the early, in the, in the late 1960s, you had a uh, Philip Curtin's um, slave trade census and right. We're all infatuated with the numbers, but, uh, what about the people, right? What about the people? Right. So, so in a way, your, um, your explication, uh, returned me to, um, you know, that particular discussion, um, as well. And so, uh, thank you so much for that. And, and, and yeah, no, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to deal with, but you know, we have silent, uh, silent, we have cautious optimism rather, um, for, for the future. And, uh, I'll say this, one of the things that gives me hope in a way is, uh, the fact that I know all three of y'all because in different ways, y'all have, uh, definitely, uh, been, been great people. And, and have provided, uh, you know, even, even just through, you know, this podcast and through friendship, um, from the, from the different areas that we are, um, up and down the East coast. So, um, you know, thank you all so much for, for giving this young brother some hope. So, uh, so, so for, for this particular question, we'll, uh, we'll go to you, uh, Dr. Roberts.
0: I mean, I think that, um, in terms of 2020, it goes to, um, Perhaps a difference of not only talking about how we get free, but how we live free, or and how we live in gen, in, in in general, even if we're not living our free life, and 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 the different challenges um, that um, not only issues of anti black racism, but also COVID nineteen um, and the ways in which they've been intertwined have been to say they're challenging is is is, is perhaps one of the understatements of the year. However, I've always. I know about others, but I've always felt as if, you know, because there are these terms that have kind of emerged this year. One of which is, uh, in parlance, kind of socially distant. To be socially distant, I've always never felt like that was exactly correct. I think, I think, for me, physically distant, right, or physical distance has been an aspect of public health. But in many regards, what what COVID nineteen has um impressed upon us all our different ways of finding and having community when there are those physical barriers and in many ways kind of sociality right How are we kind of socially well right now we're 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 in different parts right of the country on a podcast and yet we're having a conversation that we might not necessarily have had at a different kind of moment and so um to your question, you said, "Well, speaking of hope," or, or I would just kind of slightly tweak it and say, in addition to speaking of hope, but thinking about how are we actually kind of living and really kind of meditating on that, because what sounds in the past is, um, at its heart, is, is 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 yes, it's telling, it's 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 storytelling, it's narrating, it's talking about archives, it's talking about how we think about history, but it's also um, within that by telling human stories, it's also kind of calling upon us to think about, well, how do we kind of live amidst some of the kind of biggest challenges of an age? And how do you respond even when we're not actually living in the ideal condition that we kind of imagine. And so I think that's that's thinking about certainly 2020 and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that there was an election, right? Uh, It hasn't come up yet. Election 2020, which is at the, at the absolute nadir, what seemed like the nadir of it couldn't get any worse. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Then, uh, and speaking of black politics, right. And speaking of not only speak, because Philly Philadelphia has come up, Georgia, you know, certainly which is still unfolding with two Senate races. Right. But also the kind of the general election, the first election of kind of, a uh, kind of uh, kind of multiracial black woman in the vice presidency. That um, there are these kind of larger electoral kind of um, uh, kind of gains and events, but also at the sub-federal, kind of the state level and even the substate level, there are still these um, are there still these actions. Different kind of kind of black folk who are uh, 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 kind of electors and counting ballots, and then who are organizing and amidst what was thought as unthinkable. What was thought of as kind of unthinkable um, circumstances uh, still struggled, uh, and uh, and there uh, nonetheless were uh, kind of uh, were actions that unfolded that are by no means complete. So that's how I think of of this book in 2020. But but I think Trio would say 2020 is is, is certainly a moment that we're wrestling with. But how do we actually kind of project forward into the into the future of these lessons? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. You're right. <laughs> Definitely, I uh, can't forget about the election that kind of happened this year. Almost forgot about it. Um, and so, um, for, for this question, what, what are your what are your thoughts, Doctor Eddins?
3: Gosh, um, what to add? I I, I think <laughs> what I think of is the ways that you know the book again calls upon not just uh, academics and scholars, but you know everyone in society who you know we're all a part of producing knowledge and, um, how I, and I think about how the book will kind of urge us in the future to think about the ways that black people imagine and do life. Um, and hopefully using those, um, using those signposts as signs to, um, to where we of where and how we can move forward. Um, I also think about the, the ways that uh, we all produce knowledge through media, celebrations and holidays, statues and commemorations, like Neil mentioned, and and just the stories we tell. And so, you know, going back to uh, Bradley's point about uh, the the overwhelming volume of death and uh, grief that a lot that so many people are experiencing. Um, how are we going to commemorate those things? What are going to be the um, the ways that we Think about this year and the future um, with regard to how people heal and hopefully take this moment of healing as a um, as a signpost to begin to imagine new futures, new structures, um, and new ways of life. So I, I think that kind of digging, taking long long durée perspectives, so to speak, about you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the COVID crisis and just race, uh, health inequalities in general, um, racial inequalities that, you know, have prompted the Black Lives Matter movement and the the racial and economic um, dynamics that led to the, the election of Donald Trump in the first place. I think a lot of those things are going to um, the way we think and write about those things are going to have a great deal to do with whether or not we kind of continue toward a, a path of like authoritarianism and destruction mm-hmm. and white supremacy, or if we're able to kind of course correct and really begin to reckon not with, not just with 2020, but with the legacies of slavery, colonialism, and, and Jim Crow. Whew,
1: indeed, uh, a reckoning indeed. Um, and, and, you know, in different areas, right, like I said, once, you know, up and down, you know, really the I-95 and East Coast. You know, you're you're seeing that um, in different ways too, with um, the activism and the energy um, on the ground going back from you know the summertime till now. So, trying to imagine what's what's next is, um, you know, like I said, hope and optimism, cautiously, of course. Um, and so, speaking of hope, um, silence in the past illustrates in vivid detail why I I really love what I do um, as a historian storyteller and also a dreamer and so uh we'll we'll start with uh, we'll return to you uh Dr Eddins. uh what world do you hope to build ultimately what are you fighting for
3: gosh that is that's probably the one question that I um I don't want to say that I struggled with, but maybe I did struggle with in some ways. I mean, I could say, you know, the platitudes of peace, love, justice, health, and (laughs) families, and that is what I want. And that is the the life that I hope to build uh, within my own life and, you know, within uh, society in general. Um, I guess I'm maybe also cautiously optimistic that um, those are, are themes and, and uh, desires and dreams that we all can push toward um, collectively. Um, but yeah, individually, um, I think that ultimately what we all want is um, e- equality and, and principles that can uplift our lives and, and spirits and allow human beings of all Stripes and walks of walks of life to thrive.
1: Amen to that. Yeah, and and you know I wanted to ask this because sometimes I notice in particular interviews and such for for books and other things, you know, getting down to like that meta granule level level of like, why are you why do you do what you do? Like like what 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 keeps you going and and what you know what do you what do you hope for? Because um, I think that that's something that can really you know be a grounding for for all of us um, as. The answer probably changes depending on the time and the year that you even ask. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> so, um, and so, uh, so, so, so for you, uh, Doctor Craig, what what are what are you what world do you hope to build, and uh, what are you ultimately fighting for?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, in terms of world building, it's never about just me, right? It's always a collective endeavor. Endeavor, but I think that you know, in solidarity with others doing this work. Um, you know, Trio asked us to think about the broader context, right? The material context in which history is produced. And that makes me think about the material and political conditions under which people, um, and especially academics, labor, right? And so, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I think I want a world where we can produce histories in whatever form, right? Um, And I mean that like very broadly, you know, not just the monograph or the peer-reviewed article, Mm -hmm. um, but doing so free from the constraints of professional precarity and structural violence um, uh, that sort of sh- shape, right, the work that we do so often, too often. Um, I think, you know, the university should be a place where we can enact what we want to see in the in the world more broadly. Um, so it should be a site for experiments and mutual aid and, you know, abolitionist knowledge and practice and commitments to justice and freedom dreams. And so um, I'd say that's that's what I would want to see.
1: Yeah no and, and thank you for for um for adding you know uh what world do you hope to build with others uh because as as you definitely said you know you, the the world we hope to live in is not one inhabited by our, our, our ourselves there so so thank you for that um and so uh lastly for this uh for this particular answer or question rather uh, what what are your thoughts uh uh Dr. Roberts, you know, we we talked a little bit about this on on an earlier podcast. So I'm interested to see uh, a couple months later, you know, what your thoughts are now.
0: I'll keep it short since those were um, really kind of powerful kind of responses by uh, Crystal and Bradley. Um, I would just say very directly, I'm fighting for freedom, uh, for self and others, uh, fighting for egalitarianism. Uh, I'm fighting for the dismantling of white supremacy in all of its forms, and I'm fighting for. Uh, when thinking about you know, not only my family but uh, two black boys of a almost five year old and a almost thirteen year old, right? The kind of what are the world you know in terms of aspirations that I may have or what I'm fighting for, things that might be considered kind of dreams in my lifetime. Um, I want these to be kind of um, aspects of their lives that they can not take as a given, but that are kind of realized. Right. And there's a lot of other things, but, um, but ultimately, um, these are, uh, these are important, but it isn't just about the self, right. It's about how we can are, how all of our individual actions may have some type of transformative effect.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And yeah, even for, you know, uh, First of all, great, great, you know, great particular answer is, you know, white supremacy in all its forms needs to be dismantled because, for for all the reasons that really are in the book, right, and maybe not all, but you know, for 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 many of the reasons, but, uh, but also, um, just thinking about, um, love and freedom struggle too, right, fighting for love and 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 the dignity of of, of really humanity as well. Um, is is something that I will add um, in terms of, you know, what I'm fighting for, for people to be able to, you know, engage in the love practices that they want to enact in this world, too, without fear of persecution. Um, Because, you know, that's, I think, an important aspect to really think about. And also something that that even in the work that I'm trying to do, in terms of uh, 18th century, um, you know, Black women's strategies and in the mid-Atlantic region of, uh, of the, you know, of North America, just thinking about where does, you know, love fit in and, and intimacy and such. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm super interested to read even more deeply, um, with those kinds of questions in mind, returning to, uh, Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson's, uh, n- new book, uh, Wicked Flesh, where, you know, the question of intimacy and black femme freedom are, um, very much, you know integral to the tax um for her work in um uh, f- uh, uh French with Louisiana and so and like
2: add to that um Yeah yeah for sure for sure rest as well you know shout out to the national industry, rest as reparations
1: Yeah absolutely <laughs> Hey hey absolutely to that and I got some rest too because uh I, 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 this interview was at 11 and, and, Lord knows I, I, by accident woke up at 10 27. Um, and so, uh, so, so I got a little bit of that, you know, a little, a little, little extra, but, um, still got some, <laughs> but, uh,
2: time for those freedom dreams.
1: Look, look, where the Kelly, where our brother Kelly at though? Come on with it. Come on with it. <laughs> and so uh, on this note, okay. So I want to end with this, you know, what I think is a fun question, um, if you could resurrect Trio and one other historical figure from the past for one night and eat a five course meal. I don't know why I keep saying five in this question. I need to I need to change this. But eat a five course meal with them. What would you ask both figures and why? And also why would you choose this, this, you know, this extra figure? And you don't need to necessarily hold it to one, but you know. At least one. So uh, we'll 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 return to you, Doctor Craig.
2: Mm. <laughs> so I don't know. This is uh, just to keep it real. I'm inclined to let the dead rest. Uh, <laughs> I feel like once you open that door, it might be hard to shut it. Um, so, oh, if you want to pass something on to me? They will let me know, um, and I'll just
3: leave it there. I-
1: Okay. All right. All right, Dr. Craig. All right, Dr. Craig. I appreciate that. that's real. That's a real answer. That's a real answer. Oh man, okay. All right. So so with that one um so we'll we'll we'll, we'll see what uh Dr. Roberts got on deck.
0: Woo, at the I don't know if the ancestors are going to um I'm going to have some kind of backlash uh, by actually um saying a name, but uh but for me it would be just one person without question is C.L.R. James. Um for uh, for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is, for me, uh, the kind of the late, kind of great thinker, C.L.R. James, like trio um, wrestled in his own way with um, with the Haitian Revolution and the Black Jacobins. It was mainly through the figure of Toussaint Louverture, but even in his subsequent kind of um, life, he, you know, reflected on the ways in which perhaps he would have even rewritten that book without simply focusing on one major revolutionary male figure, um, but also because, um, and even maybe even more so than Trio, I mean, James's connection to uh, to kind of writing um, is not someone who was formally trained as a historian, right? James didn't have a PhD, right, <laughs> or a master's, right? Uh, at either. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, someone nonetheless who was a, right, there's a distinction between an academic and an intellectual, right? James was mm-hmm. an intellectual who happened at certain periods of time in his life to have some appointments uh, teaching as, uh, but, but ultimately was an intellectual who was concerned with the world in which he saw around him and how could that world be transformed and what are the lessons that we did or did not learn from uh, upheavals in the Caribbean uh, and the Caribbean diaspora uh, that interacted with the very nature of the kind of of modern world uh, of modern world systems and uh, and and you know I would love to have known not just um, what James um, thought or would think but also kind of trios kind of responses. You know, kind of responses, uh, kind of responses to that as two kind of I think important figures, who were kind of raised in the Caribbean, who wrote about the Caribbean, but were also concerned with the ways in which um, the Caribbean kind of looked out uh, into the world, and uh, and then also even maybe asking them both not merely about romantic views of their work, but also you know areas that I either didn't write about or maybe what i wished that they had had considered and then um and then uh and then closed it out so
1: yeah no that's that's you know once again you know don't want to don't want to ruffle the feathers of the ancestors here but <laughs> i i appreciate you for taking a stab at it <laughs> uh but uh but but yeah you know you're you're right uh james is definitely you know uh an intellectual and it's an important you know space to kind of think about like that difference and um, um, where we even might fit into that particular uh, dichotomy in particular too. Um, and so uh, to, to close us out here, uh, Dr. Eddins, what, what are your, well, if you're taking on the question, what would you answer?
3: <laughs> <to>? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I would kind of switch it up a little bit and I, I think I would invite Ida B. Wells Barnett. Um, mm. She's such a uh, kind of a giant in my mind and uh, for for multiple reasons, and I, I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear her and Trio talk about the relationship between um, silence and violence. Uh, Trio is someone whose work has you know influenced our thinking about the ways that historical archives perpetuate the physical and symbolic violence of slavery and colonialism. Um, but Ida B. Wells obviously was someone who lived with and, and saw that violence firsthand and um, challenged it in real time and exposed the silences that um, racial terrorism imposed. Um, she was also someone who spoke about the ways that uh, gender, sexuality, and, and intimacy shaped racial violence in the archives of, of lynching. So I would be interested to hear her thoughts about um, or the way that she and trio would maybe dialogue about the pr- power and production of history. I mean, we already, we have her writings and, uh, petitions and pamphlets or whatnot, but I would be curious about the ways that maybe she would even add to, or, um, correct some of trio's ideas if, if applicable. Whew.
1: no, that, that's a, that's a powerful way to end it as a powerful way to end it. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to be at that table or as a fly on the wall there too, because I, I think that, uh, I think uh, Wells Barnett would definitely have some thoughts, because Lord knows by reading her, you know she always has some thoughts, <laughs> which which is great, and I'm I love reading her uh, diary. I have a couple copies of it, um, and so you know I just want to say thank y'all so much for such an amazing discussion, Dr. Crystal Eddins, Dr. Bradley Craig, and Dr. Neil Roberts, for chatting with me today on new books in African American studies to discuss. The 25th anniversary of the publication of such an amazing book. And that book, if you have gotten here and don't know what that name is, Silencing the Past Power and the Production of History. And if you like this episode, rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe to New Books in African American Studies and the New Books Network as well. Until next time, folks. This is your host, Adam McNeil, signing off. Over and